Let's pray. Holy God, through the power of the Spirit, be with us this very moment as we come to your word. Fill us with greater knowledge, greater love of who you are. Bless us, fill us. In Jesus' name, amen. Parable of the Good Samaritan. You've probably heard this parable, or you at least have heard the term Good Samaritan. I mean, everybody's heard the term Good Samaritan. We define it as somebody who helps another in need. There's even a Good Samaritan law to protect somebody who comes to the aid of somebody who is in need. And if you were going to sum up the parable of the Good Samaritan, it would be something like, uh, be good to others who need help. Something like that, right? If you're going to be a good person, go out of your way to help somebody who is in need. I mean, this is what we would teach a children, a child regarding this parable about the Good Samaritan. And we might add the golden rule in there as well, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, that's good, right? If we actually had more people going out of their way to help those in need, or doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, life would be better, wouldn't it? But, or however, and it's a big however, if that's all you make out of this parable, you've missed the point. If that's all you make out of this parable, you've missed the point. Because this parable actually touches on some very profound topics. It touches upon, how am I saved? What does it mean to love God? And then what does it mean to love our neighbor? What does it mean to have the love and compassion, the grace and mercy of God for our neighbor? Now you might be thinking, hold on, hold on. I came to church. We're doing the parables of Jesus. He told simple stories. Isn't this supposed to be a real simple story? Well, Jesus did tell a bunch of parables and he made them simple. But he told simple stories to help us understand the divine. You see, the actual, what happens before we get to this parable is that Jesus has sent out the 72. They've come back. They're telling him all these wonderful things that have happened. And he thanks the Father. And then he gathers them in. And he says this to him: Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So today, as we come to this parable, desire to see what Jesus sees, desire to hear and understand what Jesus is talking about. And as Jesus said often, he who has ears to hear Let him hear. So let's go to the parable. Begins setting setting up the parable this way. And behold, 
a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with your strength and with all your mind and your neighbors yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So by the way, a lot of people skip over this part because they just want to get to the parable. But if you skip over this part, the parable actually doesn't have the depth, the breadth for it. So, what's happening? Jesus is preaching and teaching, right? And just like today, back then, people would stand up and try to trap the speaker with a gotcha question, right? So we have a lawyer. And by the way, when we, when we talk about lawyer, it's not like we talk about today, a lawyer like that. This is somebody who would have been well-versed in the law of Moses. So he was a lawyer in that respect. Or you could say a theologian. So he stands up, and he's going to try to trap Jesus with a gotcha question, and he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In, in our vernacular, it, we would say, what must I do to be saved? Or how do I go to heaven? And I want you to notice what Jesus did. He didn't answer him right away, directly like that, did he? He actually asked a question. He says this, What is written in the law? How do you read it? See, rather than try to argue back and forth, Jesus said, What has God already said? And I think this is a good lesson for us. Rather than try to argue apart from Scripture, we should actually just say, Well, what has God said? Because a lot of people who want to argue against Christianity don't actually know what God has already said. You know, Jesus even refuted the devil. When he was in the wilderness and the devil was tempting him, Jesus answered, it is written. All right, so Jesus poses this question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer He answers with basically two verses, one from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus. Deuteronomy is part of the Shema, one of the most famous scripture readings for the nation of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And the Leviticus, which we had our reading today, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the lawyer, he's book smart, right? Did he give the right answer? He did. If you sum up all of the law, if you condense it, the very essence is about love. It is about the love of God. And then your love of neighbor. Jesus, when he was tested in in Mark, he answered this too. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he gave the same answer as the lawyer. So it was the right 
and proper answer. And then Jesus said this. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Pretty simple, right? So you've answered correctly. Do this and live. I want to tell you this is very simple to understand, isn't it? I mean, we all get that. It's simple to understand. It is impossible to do. Let me say it again. This is simple to understand, and it is impossible for us to do. Impossible, you might say. Well, let me put it this way. Have you ever loved one fully and completely without reservation? Remember Billy Graham, his wife Ruth? She was asked, have you ever thought about divorce? And she said, no, I've never thought about divorce. Murder, yes, but not divorce. Right? (laughs) We'll see which couple nudges the other hard. (laughs) So, I mean, there's a level that we're talking about here, isn't it? And it's not just the feeling of love. The Bible doesn't talk just about the feeling of love. It includes one's actions because Jesus said, do this and you shall live. You see, taking action on God's word is what God desires for you. I mean, we've covered that in the parable. We talked about the parable, building your house on the rock. Jesus said, if you not only hear, but do my words, you'll be like the man who built, your house on, built up his house on the rock. So taking action is not only what the Old Testament declares, it's what the New Testament declares. But the commandment is even greater than that, isn't it? It's not just loving a little bit. It's supposed, you're supposed to be all in, without reservation, nothing left out. See, to fully and perfectly love God is to fully and perfectly keep his commandments. That's what it's talking about. Now, some people might say, well, okay, great. If I want to go to heaven, all I have to do is fully and completely keep his commandments. Good. I'm good to go. Au contraire, mon frère. Have any of us ever perfectly kept even one commandment? Let Let me just give you a couple questions just to see how you're doing, okay? And you don't have to answer. This can be a silent response. How many lies have you ever told? Yeah, telling lies. Have you ever stolen something, even very, very small, something simple, even changed from your parents' dresser? Have you ever used God's name in a way that shouldn't be used? Have you, (laughs) did you ever disobey your parents? Okay, so these are just four questions, but if you answered Yes, to these four, you are a lying, thieving, blasphemous rebel. Ta-da! And by the way, if you break one, you break them all. So it is impossible for us to do what Jesus said. It is impossible. It's impossible because... 
the love, the call to love God and our neighbor isn't even on the same scale that we consider. It speaks to the great, great, deep, divine love of who God is. Of who God is. And that's the measuring stick. He is the measuring stick for what it means to love him and to love our neighbor. And we fall short. We fall short simply because of sin, right? In Romans it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, if you say, Hey, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm working on keeping the Ten Commandments, you are out of luck. There is no possibility of you inheriting eternal life just by trying to follow the Ten Commandments because you will fall short. But there is one who has not fallen short, and his name is Jesus. That's right. He has not fallen short. Jesus perfectly loved the Father, perfectly loved the neighbor. And that's why he came. He came to pay the price because we fall short. And salvation is all his doing. There's one thing and one thing alone that you brought for your salvation. The only thing you brought for your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So Jesus came. He paid the price for that. And you can only inherit eternal life through him. It says this from our reading in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So how does one inherit eternal life? Through grace alone, in Christ alone. Period. That's it. Did the lawyer understand that? He didn't, did he? I mean, here is the Savior of the world right before him. And he didn't comprehend what Jesus had been teaching, what Jesus had been preaching, the miracles that he'd done. Look, if I were one of the disciples, I don't know if I could have held back. I would say, don't you know who's right in front of you here? But what does Jesus do? He lets the lawyer's pride come forth in its fullness. He lets the sin show forth. And how do we know that the lawyer's pride came forth? It is this. But desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, what he was doing, he was really trying to justify how good he was already. And that there are some people who deserve help and some people who don't deserve help. You know how lawyers like to look for loopholes? They do. We all do. Because sin likes to look for loopholes. 
And so now Jesus is going to tell a parable in which there are no loopholes. So we finally get to the parable here. It says this, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. So, this man was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. We, we, it, it's down because actually Jerusalem's on the hill and Jericho's lower. So he literally was going down to Jerusalem, uh, to Jericho. And he's a Jew. So he gets uh, beaten, robbed. He's left for half dead. And then two very religious people come by. One is a priest would have been a temple priest. He walks by, and he actually goes on the other side to go around this man, doesn't stop at all. And a Levite, part of the tribe of Levi, who were to be dedicated unto the Lord, this Levi, Levite, goes around too. Now, these are two men who knew the law. They should have been able to quote Deuteronomy. They should have been able to quote Leviticus. The greatest command, love God and love your neighbor. But two religious people passed them by. You would think, well, how could that ever, ever happen? Well, it's a lot easier than you think. Let me tell you about an experiment that was done, kind of a famous experiment, in 1973 at Princeton Theological Seminary. It's called the Good Samaritan uh, Experiment. Now, uh, you can go online. I'm going to give you a bit of a truncated version of, of what it was. But they wanted to find out, would seminarians actually go out of their way to help somebody in need? So, there was one semester, and uh, one of the professors gave an assignment to the seminarians that they were to go preach or teach, at least on the Good Samaritan. And to do that, they had to go from his classroom to another classroom uh, down the hall. I don't know how far it was, but it was a little ways away. They, they had to really walk to get there. And what he did with one group, he gave them about 10 minutes or so to be able to get to their classroom. And with another, he gave them less time. So they kind of had to hurry a bit. And with one, they gave them barely enough time to get to the other classroom to do it. And they had to go through this corridor in which there was planned a guy who looked destitute and certainly in distress, in need. So they literally had to go by this guy on their way to preach about the Good Samaritan. So be curious what you think the results are. I'm going to give it to you here. So those who weren't as hearing, 63% stopped. You would, right, these are religious people. Why didn't 100% stop? They had time. 
Now, those who were moderately hurried, only 45% stopped. And those who were very hurried, only 10% stopped. To somebody who's destitute and obviously in distress, in need. These were religious people. So it's very easy for us to become self-absorbed in our own little world. Even if we go to church, right? Even if we do all the religious things, it's very easy for us to become self-absorbed. And now 50 years later, I think this experiment would show even worse results. How do I, why, why would I say that? Well, have you noticed how many muggings, beatings, and things have happened during the day? And how many videos we have of that because people stop and they video it rather than stopping and helping the person in need. It boggles my mind. Oh, there's somebody getting beat up. Let me just video it. I think we've become even more self-absorbed. But even if we haven't, the same moral condition is in our hearts as the Levites, as the priests. But the parable doesn't stop there. They had no compassion, but there was one who had compassion. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. They set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Do you remember last week we talked about uh, tax collectors? If you were here, we talked about tax collectors. And we all have tax collectors that we do not like and even despise. Well, the hatred between Sumerians... And Jews was even greater than that. The mere term Samaritan was one of contempt on the lips of Jews. Jewish rabbis said, Let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is one who eats the swine's flesh. And that goes back even to the prodigal son about how unclean the swine were. A popular prayer in those days said, And Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. In essence, Lord, let the Samaritans go to hell. So it was astounding when Jesus not only used the Samaritan in this example as the hero, but it was also astounding that Jesus sat with the Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4. He truly was breaking the barriers of the culture. So why did he stop? Why did the Samaritan stop? It's actually in the text. He stopped because he had compassion. Compassion. Uh, It's often uh, related to mercy. Have you ever been in a situation where you've come across somebody and your heart just breaks for them and you have to stop and help them. 
or you have a feeling in the gut. It just like kicks you in the gut and you have to stop and help. That's the compassion that we're talking about here. The Samaritan saw the Jew, and even though they were enemies, he didn't see the Jew as an enemy. He saw them as someone who was in need, a person who was in need. When people only see enemies, it increases their hatred and contempt for others. But when you see them as people, not enemies, compassion is present. Now, a couple of years ago, I gave this example, but I, it fits so well here, and we have a lot of people who haven't heard this yet. During World War II, the Japanese took many prisoners of war and made them uh, do slave labor. And there's a fellow named Ernest Gordon. He was a Scotsman. He was captured and, by the Japanese and forced to help build a railroad in Thailand. He wrote a book about this called Through the Valley of the Kwai. It's also been repackaged, same book, different title, uh, To End All Wars. It was a movie a number of years ago with Kiefer Sutherland. I actually have one copy back on the resource table. It is one of the best Christian testaments I have read. A testimony. So, they had to build this railway, railroad, and it was called the Railway of Death. More than 80,000 Allied prisoners of war died during the building of this railroad. Approximately 393 lives for every mile of track, one grave for about every 13 feet of track. So, if you took a look today, from that end to this end, there would be about four graves just to build this one section here. The Japanese were evil. I really mean that. They were evil. And it was a horrific condition. During this time, Ernest Gordon and many other men came to faith in Christ Jesus. In the midst of hell, they came to faith in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to read an account that's at the very end of the book to talk about, uh, that encapsulates a bit of their journey and how they grew in love, grace, mercy, and compassion. So it's at the end of the war. The Japanese were losing, by the way. And they were at a railway station. He writes this. We found ourselves on the same track with several carloads of Japanese wounded. They were on their own and without medical care, no longer fit for action. They had been packed into railway trucks, which were being turned, returned to Bangkok. They were in a shocking state. I've never seen men filthier. Their uniforms were encrusted with mud, blood, and excrement. Their wounds, sorely inflamed and full of pus, crawled with maggots. We could understand now why the Japanese were so cruel to their prisoners. If they didn't care for their own, why should they care for us? 
The wounded men looked at us forlornly as they sat with their heads resting against the carriages, waiting fatalistically for death. They were the refuse of war. There was nowhere to go and no one to care for them. They were the enemy, more cowed and defeated than we had ever been. Without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their rations, and a rag or two, with water canteens in the hands, went over to the Japanese train to help them. Our guards tried to prevent us yelling at us, but we ignored them and knelt by the side of the enemy to give them food and water, to clean and bind up their wounds, to smile and say a kind word. Grateful cries of thank you followed us when we left. An allied officer from another section of the train had been taking it all in. What bloody fools you all are, he said to me. Don't you realize that those are the enemy? Have you never heard the story of the man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho? I asked him. He gave me a blank look, so I continued. He was attacked by thugs, stripped of everything, and left to die. Along came a priest. He passed him by. Then came a lawyer, a man of high principles. He passed him by. Next came a Samaritan, a half-caste, a heretic, an enemy. But he didn't pass him by. He stopped. His heart was filled with compassion. Kneeling down, he poured some wine through the unconscious lips, cleansed and dressed the helpless man's wounds, then took him to an inn where he cared for him at his own expense. But that's different, the officer protested angrily. That's in the Bible. These are the swine who starved us and beaten us. They've murdered our comrades. They are our enemy. Brothers and sisters, just as the officer did not understand the compassion, the love, the grace, the mercy of God, Neither did the lawyer. Let me tell you how great God's love is for you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God's grace, His mercy, His compassion has reached out to you though you were enemies, though you did not deserve it. Christ knelt beside you. He healed your wounds. He washed you clean. He brought you up. This is the great love, the depth, the breadth, the mercy of God for you. So Jesus asked the lawyer, 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Are we to help those in need? Yes, without doubt. Why? Because of the great love, the great mercy, the great grace that God has given us. Because of the love that God is. We are to show that to others for no other reason than that. Even if they are, they are our enemy. So we are to take Jesus' words to heart in the depth and breadth of what he has said. Go and do likewise. Amen.